Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. We are going to talk about Parshat Yitro and we, because we've enjoyed kind of picking up on pieces from the Parsha that are a little less known, a little bit more glossed over, we are not going to be talking about the Ten Commandments because you probably all know about the Ten Commandments. If you want to know more about honoring your father and your mother, you can read what I wrote in the Table of Five this week. Uh, if not, don't worry about it. Um, you can also come to Shul and we will read the Ten Commandments. Elon Spar will be doing the Haftorah, so that also will be beautiful. It won't be the Ten Commandments, but it'll be beautiful. Um, and uh, Rabbi Matt Shapiro is going to give a drash that incorporates postmodernism and revelation that's going to make Rabbi Schatz's eyes go crossed, and, and that's going to be really fun. Rabbi Schatz will be drinking coffee while Rabbi Shapiro gives a sermon. Um, and that's a good thing. I'll be listening very intensely. At no respect. And uh, and that's that. Those are all the fun things that we have to say about this Parsha. <laughs> we're going to – we'll take you through a little bit to get to our verses. And uh, Rabbi Shapiro, go ahead. The end. Okay. okay. Um, not only, by the way, are we talking about Parshat Yitro, we're, we're literally talking about uh, Chapter 20, which is if, – if you know it offhand, you know it's – the chapter where we get Aseret Debrot. Um, I, I don't think there's a way to, you know, usually I sort of read through the, the chapter and like the verses pr- preceding, like directly preceding the, the, the we're going to be looking at, but it's, it, it's basically the 10 commandments. So I'll just, I'll, and if you know them, you, you you know that we can spend a very long time talking about them. So I'm actually going to back up and then fast forward a little bit, and then um, we'll get into Kushiot, which is just to remind folks that in in the context of the narrative, um, people are a little freaked out about this whole revelation deal, right? Th- there is some real apprehension and concern around what this experience is going to be like for them. So if you pick it up um, towards the end of chapter 19, you can see that that as we are building towards revelation, right, as there is smoke and thunder and lightning and trembling and a horn, right, all this, this sensory overload that is preceding the experience, um, God tells Moses to tell the people not not to get to close, right? That that there shouldn't be too much proximity in terms and um, then basically Moses saying back, right? Of course, like the people can't go up. You warned us there need to be boundaries. God says back to Moses, okay, so you can go down, come back um, with Aaron. It's interesting that Aaron is in the mix here, which um, not that I'm looking at it, might, might have also been an interesting piece to explore. Um, but not neither the people not we can change what, it if you want we can just stop and like riff off of a random we we could we sure could rabbi um but but right ultimately it's okay you and aaron 
but not not the priests, right? Not even the the sort of holy holiest group, right, within the people, um, nor um, the rest of the Israelites can can come up, lest there be um, some really um, right, lest God not break out against them, right? Going going back up that 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 people shouldn't die when they're having this experience of revelation. So then Moses goes down and says to them, and God spoke all these words, right? An interesting sort of beat there, right? What, what did Moses say? Did Moses say God spoke all these words? Did Moses go tell them that? And, and then we, we get to the revelation. We're not going to get into the big 10 here today per se. Um, I'm the Lord, your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, no idolatry. Don't take God's name in vain. Keep Shabbos, honor your father and mother, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't bear false witness, don't covet other people's stuff. Shabbat Shalom. Um, good? Rabbi Shots, how'd I do? That was awesome. That was very good, yes. Well, I'm so glad that that's how we just went through this. Okay. I mean, uh, um, so let, we're going to, we're going to, like I said, fast forward over those to sort of hop back into the narrative just focusing in on this this one more verse that all all these people saw right all the Israelites saw what was happening they saw the thunder the lightning the horn the smoke and then they they fell back right they fell back even further than they already were and they stood far away so we're now going to be picking up the two verses that we're going to be looking at today is sort of an interesting back and forth um, between the people and Moshe between the Israelites and Moses so we're looking at chapter 20, verse 16 and 17. By Yomru el Moshe, they, they said to Moses, Daber ata imanu You can talk to us and we'll, and we'll translate it as obey and we'll hear it. But, but don't, <laughs> don't have God talk to us, right? God shouldn't speak to us lest we die is really interesting. Vayomer Moshe el Ha'am, Moses answers back to them. Al tirau, don't don't be afraid. Um ki levavur nasot etchem, for it is only in order it's translated here as to test you, Rabbi Shatz, I don't know what what you saw as you were poking around, but there's some very interesting interpretations of word of what this word um, nasot might or might not mean. Especially because it comes from the word nes, which we think of as miracle, but also can mean banner or some kind of flag flying above. Continue. Yes, lot, lots of lots to it. I'm just here for commentary. Yeah, uh, like any good rabbi. Okay, uh, so that God has come to nasot you. Maybe I'll intentionally leave that untranslated. Um, uh, God is only coming to do that. And so that um, the Yirah, which I'm, I'm also going to try to leave untranslated for the moment, that the Yirah of God should always be upon your faces, lest, and here it's translated so that you do not go astray, but in the Hebrew it's more like Chet is sin right a really big mistake right so that you so that you should always have 
the yira, usually translated as fear, but it has a connotation of awe and so on and so forth, so that you should always have the fear slow. What? Reverence. Reverence. Very nice. Thank you. Um, Excellent commentary. So that you should always have the fear slash reverence slash awe of God on your faces, lest you go astray slash sin slash make a mistake. So you can hear, <laughs> here is how I'm, I'm translating with, with, uh, without linearity that, that I think there's a lot to play with in terms of the language here, but those are the two verses that we're going to be focusing in on. Obviously lots to explore. The concept of revelation is really interesting. I think chap, uh, chapter verse 17 is really interesting in terms of like the logic that's being set up there. I will stop talking because I want to leave room. For others to ask. Kushio, Rabbi Shots, over to you. Great. So let's zoom in a little bit on um, 16 and 17, literally, so that we can read it a little bit better. Um, and uh, yeah, anybody have any questions or thoughts or comments on these verses that at some point will be back on our screen? Uh, Elon. So in 17, there seems to be a contradiction. On the one hand, uh, Moses says, be not afraid, and yet he comes back uh, only in the same sentence and says, but don't be afraid, but uh, in, in order that uh, the fear, you know, they know that he'll be with you, so the fear of God uh, should be with you so you don't go afraid. Well, which is it, be afraid or not be afraid? Right. Um, and it once again brings up uh, the theme that I've spoken about before, which is it is troublesome to think that we should uh, respect God, be in awe of God, because we fear God. It's it's once again God as mafia don, right? And and is that the notion of God that we really want to have? Great. I'm not even going to respond because most of that was the questions that I also looked into commentaries about. So wonderful. And I think we'll learn a little bit more about it in a few minutes. Renee. Yeah, I was kind of going also on along uh, Elon's uh, trail, but, and also that it, it seemed to me that in the begin that in previous, uh, whatever, Sukim or whatever they, that Moses was the one that was saying that Hashem was talking to him and not talking to the, to the people themselves because of the danger it would cause them. And here it's saying the, it's it's the lehefech. The people are saying to him, "Will you talk to us? But don't let us don't let Hashem talk to us because if Hashem talks to us directly, then we're going to die." So which was it? Was yeah, was he telling the people or were the people telling him? And if the people were telling him, how did they know, how did they know that Hash, that Hashem would let them die if he heard if they heard him? Can I can I chime in here for a sec? Go right ahead. The, the so I. A very long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, uh, wrote my uh, thesis for Rabbi Elliot Dorff's philosophy concentration um, on a Gadamerian read of narratives of, don't roll your eyes at me, Rabbi Rebecca Schatz, of different narratives of revelation in the Torah, Gadamer, who is a, a... uh, philosopher of, of hermeneutics, the process through which we seek out meaning in text. Um, so I've looked pretty closely, it's been a while, but I've looked pretty closely at the different narratives of revelation over the course of the Torah. The closer you look at them, the less sense they make. Yeah. It doesn't make logical sense. Which means, it just, it, it just doesn't. People should probably listen then to your sermon tomorrow. 
Yeah. So are you going to clarify that tomorrow in your sermon? Or are you going to tell me which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, probably yeah. the egg and also probably not. No, yeah, I think that your sermon has a lot to do with that. I mean, on the heels of this, it has to do with that, of, of, this, of the parts of the sermon that I know about. Um, the, what, I, what I was going to say back to Renee is that I, this is actually part of what really spoke to me um, that, that was actually harder for me to find commentary on or anything to learn um, from, from this. And maybe it's because of what Rabbi Shapiro just said, which is like, it's just unknown to us and kind of unclear. But it made me think, and just go with me for a second, I'm not joking, but it's going to sound hysterical. It made me think of the scene in The Sound of Music where they are all... If you can roll your eyes at me about postmodernism, I can definitely roll my eyes at you about Sound of Music. Yeah, anybody can roll their eyes at me. That's fine. Um, that the kids are scared of the thunder and lightning, and they go to the person for whom they also have fear for, right? They go to Maria and they are scared of the thunder and lightning and find comfort in her because there's something scarier. But, and, they, don't, but they don't go to their dad who they're actually afraid of. Right, they, that's true. They don't go to their dad. So it's interesting here that that, that, um, that, that sense of comfort kind of is coming now from a different place than they thought they were finding it before based on the pomp and circumstance that they just experienced with the Ten Commandments. Um, so I love that question, and I just wanted to give you that visual as what popped in my head when I was um, when I was reading it. Any other kushiot, any other thoughts? Um, oh, I didn't know that, Jay. I know that Christopher Plummer died today. Hmm. Yeah, they just announced. Wow, that's really sad. I did not know that. Any other questions, thoughts, comments? Alan Broidy, you usually have something for us. Do you have anything? No, no pressure. I think it's just interesting how they have more faith in Moses. They're okay with Moses telling them what to do. Yeah. But the idea that God would come down and tell them scares them. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And that goes back, I think, a little bit to what Renee was saying and kind of the way that I was, that I was yeah. sound of musicifying it also. Uh, yeah you find someone who you wouldn't expect to necessarily find that comfort in. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Alan. I, you yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have a raise hand button on a system only on my phone, not no, here, no but this, you know, this really deals with the, the, the nature of revelation. What did B'nai Israel actually hear yeah. and from whom? Mm -hmm. And there's some people that say they only that they only heard directly from God the first two commandments. Mm -hmm. I know there's some proof text for that in the language of the Ten Commandments, but I haven't looked at it recently. I don't remember the exact source. Mm -hmm. And then there are others um, that say the, 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 that the only thing that they heard directly from God was the first letter of yeah. the Ten Commandments, which is Anochi, which is, of course is the silent olive. So the revelation is going to be that which is silence mm. in what takes place. And um, it is, um, it's a great unknown. And it's also very interesting that the interplay between Elohim and Adonai that's taking place here, because here we're talking about, you know, talk about Elohim is giving the commandments and he says, Ani Adonai, Adonai the, the tetragamon. And mm -hmm. so the interplay of justice and mercy and with, you know, God's imminence and God's transcendence in terms of the two words and what the rabbis do with that is is fascinating. But what happened? What was the nature of it? Was it a transcendent experience? Was it an imminent experience? 
we could talk for a long time about that. Yeah, that's great. And one of one of my favorite teachings um, is actually on one of the moments that you touched upon, which is the Ro'im et HaKolot, right? How can you see the voices? Um, and this idea that revelation was something that everyone experienced in their own way. Whatever way was best for them, as an educator, this really speaks to me in terms of how we teach, right? That not everybody is a visual learner, not everybody is an auditory learner. People need different things um, to learn best. And so same with Revelation, we all experienced the commandments in the way that was best for us to experience them. Um, so it's interesting that that we are creating it into something and yet everybody might have had a different um, or a unique, I should say, experience to what they actually experienced. Um, that was redundant. Sorry about that. Joanna. Two things. Um the timing of like study that is happening in the show right now is quite interesting because I was in Rabbi Kligfeld's um, Rashi class on Wednesday where we're at the moment of um, Moshe at the burning bush. And I think it's worthy recalling that at that moment, Moshe was so fearful. So Moshe now has had a little bit of time to get used to revelatory experiences with God whereas B'nai Yisrael hasn't. And just acknowledging that there was something so awesome and powerful about this first encounter that evokes a certain amount of trepidation and fear. The other thing I just I wanted to comment on also was to pick up on Alan's point about the silent Aleph. Yeah. One of my favorite midrashim on the giving of the Aserah Tadibrot is, you know, you picture the description in the Bible of the cacophony going on, of the thunder, the lightning, the shofar blowing. And then there comes this midrash that says that at the actual moment of revelation, both in like the world above and in our world, there was absolute silence. Not an angel flapped their wings, not a cow mooed. And I mean, that midrash to me actually, like it reads like poetry. And it's a very powerful counterpoint to the text, I think. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for both of those. That's great. Uh, Karen and then Denise and then Rabbi Shapiro will share one of his pieces. I don't think it's unusual to love someone and be fearful of their response. Yeah. Maybe I zoomed out when we finished talking about this. <clears throat> but I was thinking about all kinds of relationships, but especially if you're a kid and you have these powerful parents yeah, and you love them a lot and you want to obey them a lot mm -hmm. and you are fearful of how they would feel about you mm -hmm. should you not obey. So mm -hmm. it doesn't, it's not one or the other, I don't think. Right. And I think that that's part of why we use the word reverence, right? Because it's not fear of something, something uh, terrible happening to you, but rather the fear of them not respecting you or, or a fear that makes you respect them um, or that kind of, um, that kind of feeling of awe and of respect and of, um, of looking up to, in this case, God, but um, but in our case, another person, and feeling, again, using that word reverence is probably better than fear uh, in terms of the feeling we're supposed to have around belief and connection. Yeah. Denise. So I feel like, okay, so they just came out of Egypt, right? And 
so like God split the sea and killed all these Egyptians. And then before that, they had like a year or whatever with plagues and lice and, and blood, and you know, like, so they know that God is powerful, but they haven't really ex experienced his love. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know, like I read that and I think like, yeah, that's kind of legitimate for them to be afraid and, and like kind of wary, you know, mm -hmm. because up until now, those things were done on behalf of the Jewish people, but it could flip. Who knows, you know, from their perspective. Interesting. That's yeah, that's a very that's a very interesting point, especially because we don't really get the commandment to love God until much later in our canon, right? In Deuteronomy. So. Yeah, and and like love has to be you know, you don't just you don't see that kind of wrath in somebody Mm -hmm. And then just love them. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think that happens. Well, Lisa, it, it reminds me of, um, there's also that teaching, right? That when, when God offered the Torah to the people, he held the mountain over them, <laughs> right? That they were basically, so going, going back to um, Elon's favorite theology, um, right? Talk about God as mafia, Don, right? The sense that like, you better accept this. You're getting Torah. <laughs> you're getting Torah. You're going squish. Um, and seasonally appropriate as well. We're actually taught then later on that in the days of Purim, right? After the story of Purim, the people like really voluntarily took Torah upon themselves to sort of like answer the question of like, well, like it was, of course, that's your favorite midrash. I love that midrash. It's your favorite midrash. I mean, it's a good midrash. It's your favorite midrash. Yeah. Ah, okay. There you go. It's Rabbi Shatz's favorite uh, midrash. Hold on one second, Alan. Candace has a question, and then we'll come back to it. I wanted to comment on the what Denise said, um, that God they haven't experienced God's love yet. Yeah. But I think, I, in my opinion, I think they experienced it when he brought them out of Egypt, when they saw the, the sea split, and they, they went from being slaves one moment to the next moment being free. I think that was a good display of, of his love yeah. for them. A hundred percent and definitely an action, right? Not necessarily like what we see later on with the Shema, which is your commandment to actually love God, but rather a very large um, uh, gesture, right, of love instead of saying, I love you, you're going to make this very grand gesture of you're now a free people and therefore because it was at my hand, which not only does God remind them of moment after moment after moment, but we today in 2021 still remember it moment after moment after moment um, that that was a way that God was showing love. Yeah, thanks yeah. for adding so that. I want to say, I think what I meant was not so much that they didn't see love per se, but they didn't see softness. They that The love was still expressed in, in a pretty dramatic, harsh, potentially scary way. Like, Yes, thank God it was done on our behalf and we came out much better for it, but it wasn't soft. It wasn't something that you necessarily feel safe and trusting with. Or or to sort of split the difference, much as God splits the sea, uh, on that, right? Like, because we're talking about how different people experience different things differently, right? Maybe some people were really feeling the love, experiencing the miracle of being taken out. And some people were thinking about the Red Sea and being like, man, God has this really wrathful, dangerous aspect, right? Could be both, right? It, it, we, we don't know which percentage of people are experiencing what emotion, 
right? Maybe, maybe this is some people who are saying this. Maybe some people thought, you know, Revelation was a really groovy light show and they were happy to, you know, check it out. So, yeah, yeah. Alan. Yeah. I'd like to expound a bit about the Midrash since it's your favorite. I've got one and that may even have a little hook for you at the end. Okay. And it's very appropriate. It all comes together because the whole reason for that, for, for the Midrash, and because if you, if Revelation is say, accept this, you're going to be killed. Okay. Well, then that's not really binding. It's Revelation in one level is a breach. It's a contract. And if it, there's, if you accept a contract under duress, then it's not binding. Mm-hmm. So what do the rabbis do? They say they have to find a way to ratify the contract after the fact. And they find various proof tests to try and show how the Jewish people accepted revelation. And one of them, uh, Rabbi Shapiro, as you rightly note, is in Purim in the book of Esther, when they talk about in chapter 9, verse 23, it's kimu blue. It was established and it was received. Mm-hmm. What was established? What was received? Of course, it was Torah, even though it was talking about the letters that were sent all out. But here's the hook. You're talking about revelation, one of you know the central themes of Judaism. And yet it is, and the rabbis include it and find a proof text for it in one of the two books in the Bible where God's name does not even appear. And we knew that about an Esther because you're dealing that with Astir Panim. I'll hide my face. That's the drosh on it. But the other book, well, it's, do you know the other book where God's name doesn't appear? Mm. SHS? Ruth? No, Ruth. It's in there with Ruth. Or is it Esther? Shira Shireen. Esther, Shira Shireen. That's right. Shira Shireen. Sit down. (laughs) All right. Anyway. Uh, Very good. I, I, I love that. I mean, that's just, that's a, a guide to the rabbinic mind. <laughs> I, I, when we get closer to Purim, I would be happy to share uh, the, how, how much I love that teaching and how I think it, it actually sets the tone for, for what it means for us to learn Torah and accept Torah and why that needs to be connected to Purim. But I, I love that as an additional, additional yeah. That is Rabbi Alexander's, your mentor, is one of his favorite draw shows. Ah, well, there we go. Makes, yes. That makes all kinds of sense. Yeah. Okay, Rabbi Shapiro, now that you've done a little party dance for yourself because you knew an answer, um, why don't you share some Torah with us? You can dance while you share it if that's helpful. That's difficult. I can barely walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, <laughs> I actually think I can do that. Okay. Um, a lot of the stuff I was telling Rabbi Schatz, a lot of the stuff that I found was was mostly um, on verse on verse seventeen, um, specifically, and playing with this idea of what one piece. One big piece of it was was what is this word nasot um, etchem? Right? What is what is that word like? Testing you, elevating you, et cetera, et cetera. But but really working with this, um, a lot of it was also about the question of. Your ah, um, and what what does that do, and and why does that happen? Um, I, I found an interesting piece, almost trying to <clears throat> sort of integrate those those two elements um, in Aviva Zornberg's book, The Particulars of Rapture. Folks know Aviva Zornberg. I hope you do. Um, brilliant contemporary scholar 
she she's written, I think, on everything except um, Vaikra at this point. She has a brie sheet. She has a schmote. She has a bamid bar. I don't know if she, she has a... It's very readable. It's all very, very readable. It's nothing is like too, too high level. You, th- you, don't, you think it is? I, I think it's excellent. I actually think she's very dense because she weaves together both, both um, rabbinic commentators. You are like, showing you how you can have different learners. Literary yeah. criticism. She is very intense to read. She is Thank you, Alan. To read. I didn't See? say it's intense. I just think no. she's easy to understand, I think. I've heard her live and also uh, like I've listened to some of her like you know you can find her on YouTube and whatever I find her much easier to listen to than to read oh interesting oh well we could riff on that for a very long time which is also particularly interesting because Rabbi Schatz processes things visually and I process them auditorily so you would think it's exactly the opposite okay anyway all of that to say, um, hello, Aviva Zornberg. Um, thank you. Um, she sort of brings, I'm sure she listens to our podcast. I, she brings together um, this idea of being tested and of the Yura. Um, I'll just, it's like a brief quote, but it's, but it's rich. She says, people are stretched to the limits of their own strength. The effort is to release a new sense of their own capabilities, a new awareness of their ability to con- to contain previously unknown extremes. So it's almost it's almost like stretching, right? This, uh, this idea that you are being tested, right? This experience of revelation is intentionally designed to push you. Right. It's not just like you what you like you click on a rerun of a sitcom and you watch and you're like, oh, that's nice. And you go to bed that that there's something about the experience that really stretches you as a person experiencing what you're experiencing in the world. And that that's that's a, a feature, not a bug. Right. That, that it's embedded in the process. Um, and and then um, she layers in a piece from from the commentator Haimek Devar and riffing on what he says, she says. Um, it's human spiritual greatness that is God's purpose in revealing himself. So like by God revealing God's self, that, that is why God is revealing God. Um, and Wait, the ability, can you say that again? It is human spiritual. You want me, I, I can pull it. You want me to pull it up on the thing so you can read it? I just want you to explain it again. I didn't. I didn't she says know. it is human spiritual greatness that is God's purpose in revealing Himself. Right? God doesn't just reveal God's self for fun. It's so that each one of us can work to get where we're trying to go and and improve ourselves and be better people. By us finding that revelation, or by the revealing happening. God making a choice to offer revelation God. is so that we can each become great. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she says, and this gets into like the Yura piece, and this is, this is interesting. The ability to endure suffering in the immense amplification of inner resources is the heritage of the ordeal of Sinai, right? So that we can like, we can have a tough time. We can actually experience something really uncomfortable. Um, which helps us grow to receive revelation, the purpose of which is to help us grow. So th- there's a lot in there. Um, but I think, A, it's an interesting for me integration of those two pieces I was thinking about 
of of the testing and of like this concept of of fear and challenge in this experience. Um, and I also like the idea that the purpose of revelation is to stretch us, stretch us and push us. Um, and that by going through this experience, it gets us to, to some version of that. It is uncomfortable, right? Revelation is like, oh, it's awesome, revelate. But there, there's real discomfort there. And I think, I think that that's something that these verses are highlighting. And I think it's an interesting concept to be um, exploring a bit. Hmm. Rabbi, Schatz, Rabbi Schatz did not like that comment. But no, 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 not at all. I, I just have to think about it. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that I understand the concept well enough to have an opinion, but I'm curious if anybody else does. Oh. Yeah, Rebecca. That's okay. You're good. You just, yeah. Yeah. I might have to mute because I'm Zooming in the same room as my daughter who's at school. So <laughs> if I get yelled at, I'll, I'll have to go. Um, I just wanted to say that the word nasot, um, because it does, in it the word experience you know experience basically not just testing it actually does make sense with what what you just described rabbi shapiro um because it's if you read it in that context you're not looking at something uh horrible but you're looking at an experience mm-hmm. um and, and i and i wonder as well if there's some intentionality in almost like synthesizing those two meanings of like elevating ourselves and being tested Right. In terms of what she's talking that that through through the being tested, we are elevated. And one of the ways we're able to move forward is is through things that we endure, through things that are difficult, um, which do push us um, and are uncomfortable, which 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 is certainly my experience. Right. Like that. I, I sometimes I learn things because they're fun and interesting. And more often than not, I learn something because. I've messed up or I've, I've had a bad experience doing something or I've, I've failed at something like, okay, well, uh, how can, how can I learn and grow from this experience? Mm-hmm. And that, that pushes me forward, right? This was uncomfortable. And how do I experience that discomfort and grow from there? I, I think there's something um, very, very rich and important in that idea. Yeah, Joanna. I think there's a very interesting contrast of the idea that um, Aviva Zornberg is presenting about God as you just presented it and thinking about some of the teachings, particularly some of the Kabbalistic teachings around creation, where in order for God to make room for humanity, God had to contract God's self um, in order for humanity to not only come into existence, but to thrive so that that understanding of God, that there are times that God contracts God's self so that humanity can thrive. And I would argue in this context, even to grow and to learn. If God is there all the time, humanity won't move forward. Uh, but then there are times where God has to expand God's self and, and, and have God's presence fill the world in a much larger way, you know, through revelation. And I don't know, I'm finding that without having a fully developed thought and thesis about that, like that comparison is, is interesting to me. You're, you're saying the the sort of duality of revelation is the bursting forth of that presence yet creation required some absence in that, in that presence. You're talking about that, that, that dance a bit. 
Right, but but I think creation and and beyond, right? In order for there to continue to be room for humanity and human expression in the world, and to be room for free thought and to be room for growth, at times God needs to contract. God, God makes an active choice to contract God's presence, and at other times God makes an active choice to expand God's presence, to make it larger, to make it more known. Right, and I, I think that's that's a um, that that's one of those seeming contradictions that holds truth within the polarities, right? Like, which one is it? Yes, right. Does God need to make God's presence absent for creation to exist? Does Does God need to be very present for us to learn? Yes, right. I, I think um, I think I think there's truth in both of those. Rabbi Kligfeld, in a recent Dvar Torah that I can't remember the context for that comment, or maybe it wasn't a Dvar Torah, it was during services. At some point, Rabbi Kligfeld, on a fairly recent Shabbat, made a, a comment about how we often think of polarities as two ends of a line. But there's a teaching where what we should do when thinking about some polarities is curve that line and bring the two ends closer together, that they're not... It was when we were teaching on Pharaoh's heart, and he was talking about the ways in which Pharaoh's heart is hard. Um, I should say we 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 didn't actually both teach. He he ended up teaching on <laughs> the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Um, but that was a really beautiful comment that he made about the hardening versus the softness, and 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 how those two things can be so close to one another, um, depending on if you're dealing with them as a spectrum or if you're dealing with them as you're as you're sharing that he shared uh, as kind of a circle on either ends of where the circle meets. Yeah, beautiful, Nancy. So I, too, look at things through the prism of an educator. Um, and what Joanna's talking about, I mean, that's, that's the best way for people to learn, the best way, right, to teach people is that you have to be this presence for a while. But if you're the presence all the time, people aren't really going to integrate it into themselves and they're not going to learn it. So this, this back and forth, I think, is really just, you know, the greatest way that people can learn. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that there is something so powerful about reading the Torah for me, I can't speak for everybody for reading the Torah as a guidebook for action rather than a guidebook for like telling someone how to do something. Um, but rather be able to like, I mean, the, the whole idea of Nasev and Ishma, which we'll get to in a few weeks, right. Of doing something and then understanding why you're doing it, that the experiential pieces of, of learning uh, really get you to a deeper place of understanding. And whether that's experiencing it by doing something or experiencing it by being part of something like Revelation, right? You, there is, there is more there than if you just hear about it, that being in that moment and experiencing it is, um, uh, is really where the, the kernel of learning uh, is at its best. Um, I'm going to take us off this topic for a, a second, more than a second, like, minutes um if that's okay with everybody um i i have two pieces i have a lot of commentaries on this i was very taken with these verses so i'm happy to just like share my source sheet with people because i'm not gonna be able to get to all of the different sources but i do want to share two um and Rosh is also showing you that he has a lot of sources, which this was a competition so i'm glad that we can are- i tell can i t- you know what i Rabbi Shots, i don't know if you've been doing this you know what i've been doing <laughs> 
Please you know, help. you know what I've been doing? No. I, the, all of my notes for our classes are in one document that I'm calling Parsha class notes. Oh. So at the end of the year, they're all going to be compiled in one thing. It sounds uh, like you should give sermons all of next year then. And, it, and I'm going to send them to you to turn them into a book uh -huh. that will, that will co-publish. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you heard it here first folks. Rabbi Shas is going to write a book. That sounds like a lot of work. Okay. Um, so this is the first, uh, if anybody just voted for that, you can, you, you can see yourselves out. Um, okay. So the, uh, just kidding. Don't leave. Um, the, the, this piece here is actually on verse 16. Um, oh, Jay, thanks. That's so nice. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm like literally nervous about this book now. That's not even a real thing. Okay. Um, so there's a commentary. <laughs> there's a commentary. Just from think of it as a written series, Rabbi Shah. Yeah, Just think of it as a series. Okay. The Orachaim is commenting on the, the part of Exodus 20, verse 16, that is talking about speak, speaking to us, right? That the people say, no, 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 Moses, we want you to speak to us. We don't want God to speak to us. It seems like God appears in like very frightening ways. We would rather you just speak to us. And that, that really spoke to me, um, because I think there's something, there's something very special about the people choosing for their leader, the leader they can go up to, they can ask questions to, they can have relationship with in a very personal way, be the one who they now want to hear from, right? Whereas if, if it were any of us and we had the choice of hearing from God versus hearing from one of our rabbis, right? Most likely it'd be pretty cool to be able to hear from God. We might like our rabbis, but it'd be pretty cool to hear God tell us something directly. And so this shift for me was a very interesting one uh, in terms of why the people might now be choosing to hear from their personal leader, right? A, a human leader. So the Orachim says, the people meant that if acceptance of God's commandments was dependent on our listening to God speak to us directly, this was no longer necessary. They said, it is good enough for us to listen to God's commandments as they come out of your mouth. We will consider this binding upon us. We do not wish to endanger our lives by being exposed to God's voice any longer. They said to Moses, if you speak to us, we will be able to hear it without dying. If God were to continue to speak to us, we cannot hear because we would die. Right, so the, the end of that is like a little bit more dramatic than, than I am willing to um, ascribe to, though you could understand where they might have felt that based on the, as Rabbi Shapiro very um, uh, Disneyified said, like the light show that they saw a few moments ago. Um, but to me, the part of this that is profound is that the people recognize that hearing commandments from a human, a person who is able to change their community in real time and without it coming from a higher power, that somehow that is that is better for them. For them to be now going through this process with a leader who can speak the mitzvot of God in their own language, so to speak, right? Through another person who they feel is relatable to them, an actual person, right? Rather than God who is just a booming voice coming from a mountain, that that seems to be important to them. And 
We've all had these experiences, right? Rabbi Shapiro and I went to rabbinical school where we had many, 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 many people who had the title rabbi. And if we are lucky, we come out of school choosing one or two as our rabbis, right? Not everybody becomes relatable to you in such a way that you would go to them first. And that doesn't mean that you don't like them, and it doesn't mean that they're not good at what they do. It just means that they don't speak your, quote, language. They don't relate to you in a way that you would want to hear them tell you what to do, right? This happens without rabbis, right? This happens with doctors. This happens with lawyers. This happens in any profession. It happens with the news, right? Which news channel do you listen to, right? It's relatable to what you want to know about or what you want to hear. So that's my first piece that I thought was really, really- I was with you until that last sentence. The news? Yeah. Well, you can just, it's fine. We can move on. Um, but anyway, so this, I thought this was- very interesting. I never thought about it before. I wanted to gift it to you as something to think about. Um, and than that, I really liked it. Hey, I'm, hey, I'm so glad. No, I, can, can, mm, okay, hold up. Just wait one moment. I, I was also, excited. I, I can tell. I, I also think that what's interesting is the way in which we now receive Torah, right? We are constantly receiving Torah through human voices, right? Whether it's me or Rabbi Klickfeld or the Parsha study that you get in your, I know Rabbi Shapiro, you're also here. I'm just naming other names or the Parsha that you get in your email every week, right? Whatever it is, you're getting Torah in many different ways and it's never from God, right? It People might feel divinely inspired, um, but but it's coming from people. Yes, Rabbi Shapiro, you're excited and you want to share something. Like Rodney Dangerfield over here. Um, I, I love the idea. I, I, it, to me, it is one of my favorite parts of our tradition that it is a multivocal tradition by design. Yeah. You know, you, you were saying how you can go to, you can go to different rabbis for different things and how that I've, I've said this once already today, but that it's a feature, not a bug that there are different there, there, we recognize that different people have different pieces to offer and that there's real value in that. I was with you up until the news piece. This will, could be a total tangent, but I'll cut it off after I say this, which is I think it's, it is different when we're trying to get to facts, yeah. right? That there still is such a thing as objective fact. There is still a shared experience that we call reality, I hope. Um, and, and I, I think there is. And, and this is, uh, I haven't given the drash yet, but this is the flaw, one of the two flaws in my drash that I'm going to be giving tomorrow, which is it's difficult to remain open to the fact that different people see the world differently without totally dissembling into chaos. That's very difficult, right? Yeah. Um, and and I, well, period, period. <laughs> I'll just leave that there because that could be a whole series of seminars um, I, I think we gain more than we lose from it, but it's, it's definitely a challenge when we open ourselves up to recognizing that there can be truth and there can be Torah from so many different sources. Um, the thesis that I didn't write was about how Judaism anticipates postmodernism and it became much more narrower. Um, but, but I think that it's, it's a challenge, right? Because then we are saying, so much is up to interpretation and how do we define what's objective and what um, leaves room for interpretation. It's mm -hmm. a gift and it's a real challenge. So, okay. 
Great. Thank you. The next, the next piece that I want to share, by the way, this chat was hysterical and I'm glad I didn't look at it while I was teaching. So the book will not be done in seven to 10 days, though you all know me very well. Um, okay. So <clears throat> this last piece that I, it looks very long, but we're just gonna read the beginning. Actually, you know what? I'm not even going to share it. I'm just going to read it. Um, the, this last piece is cause I just don't want to be distracted by the part I'm not going to read. Um, is talking about verse 17. And I, I shared with you my safari sheet because again, I think some of the things that we didn't get to will answer some of the kushio that you had. So if you wanna look through it, you're more than welcome to. Um, and if Rabbi Shreya wants to share his notes, I'm sure he can as well. Um, so this piece is from Sichot Haran. And um, I actually don't, maybe Rabbi Shapiro knows, I don't know the time frame for a Sichot Haran, but I could, could definitely look that up in a moment. Um, but it's actually not specifically on this week's Parsha, but it comes up as a general theory, a general um, understanding based on what we are given in the verse uh, that we just read, which I'm going to read to you one more time before I read the commentary. So the verse is, Moses answered the people, be not afraid for God has come only in order to test you and in order that the fear of God may be ever with you so that you do not go astray. Now back to something that Elon mentioned that I agree with wholeheartedly is I do not believe in doing things uh, ritually or observantly or Jewishly because I fear God or really because of a reverence for God. Um, it has much more to do with my relationship with my community, my relationship with mitzvot, because I feel like they connect me more to my religion. Uh, I don't stand in my kitchen thinking about which plate to pull out of my cupboard, thinking about how God can tell whether or not I'm going to put dairy on that plate or not. Um, so I'm, I, I don't believe in the theology that the Torah is placing for us here, which is you must be in fear of God to find relationship with God. It's not a theology I um, agree with. And uh, um, yeah, I just don't know when it is. Uh, um, Ed Nachman is, is 18th century. 18th century, thank you. I'm just not good with dates. Um, so anyway, so here's, here's this piece from the 18th century. Newsflash. It is written... Know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below, and there is no other. That's from Deuteronomy. Some philosophers try to use this verse to prove that one must know God philosophically. The Rebbe said that this is absolutely false, and there is a reference that states that this interpretation was first used by Karaites. Karaites are Jews who only follow Judaism based on the Torah. No rabbinic Judaism, just based on Torah. So when it says don't cook a kid in its mother's milk, they will eat a cheeseburger because the cheese is not being cooked with the meat. It's being cooked separately and is on top of the meat. Um, fun fact, where I worked up north uh, in Foster City is the second largest Karaite community outside of Israel. So I was able to learn a lot about their customs and uh, and traditions, and they actually prayed in our building. Um, it looks a lot like Muslim prayer. They use rugs. They they are much more on the ground, um, prostrating on the ground as opposed to how we bow. Anyway, fascinating. If you don't know about Karaite Jews, really something to look into. Um, okay, 
Keep on going. The only way to know God is through faith. This is the only path to knowledge and perception of God's true greatness. So what, and then there's much more on this. Again, if you want to look at this source sheet, you can. It it just, it kind of unravels from here, but that was the part that I wanted to share. So the only way to know God is through faith. This is the only path to knowledge and perception of God's true greatness. Now, I don't know what they were using as a translation of faith, right? I don't know if what they were saying was faith in God or faith in God being present in your life, you know, in your kitchen, in your living room, right, that you feel like God is with you, or just a belief in the things that you do, which again is how I believe and find myself most connected. But I like this as a way of thinking about how we connect to God, how we think of God as um, a partner rather than some some thing, some, some character, some relational being um, to to just conceptualize and be scared of and not feel that relationship with. Um, so that was, that was the one kind of heady piece I wanted to bring, um, and would be interested in hearing if you agree or disagree. Uh, if you don't understand what I just said, you can also tell me that. Um, yeah, Joanna. Um, so again, in, you know, loving in, I happen to be in a bit of a lull in work, so I'm attending a bunch of, um, classes in, um, Rabbi Avi Habibi's Tefillah class, we were um, discussing the Tefillah Emet V'yativ, and we were discussing uh, Emet V'yativ and the other version, Emet V'emunah, and we were discussing the the real meaning of the word Emet, and that it's not so far away from faith. So that interplay between truth and faith is very interesting in light of what yeah. you you said and what we've been discussing here. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Elon, I'm I'm curious your thoughts based on your original kushia and where where you've come to since the beginning of the class. So uh, I'm what I struggle with is while I agree with you that it is important to have a relationship with God based on faith, how does one um, how does one, how is one able to discount the fact that it is clear that our tradition says that our relationship with God is based on fear? It's fine that you and I have the opinion that it's better to have a relationship based on faith, but that is not what, that that is part of our tradition, that it is based on faith, but it's also clearly part of our tradition that it's based on fear as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so much so that, right, the idea of Isarim Shel Ahava, which we, which we learn about in the Talmud, is one that says, if things go bad for you in life, don't worry, they'll be good for you in the world to come, right? So much so that, 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 that we are, we are connected to a, a, a way in which if you are not, if you are not in fear of God or of the relationship with God, that you might not practice those mitzvot, or you might not find yourself observant or um, or connected to Judaism, and and 
Yeah, I mean, I agree that you and I don't don't agree with that. And yet a lot of our tradition is based upon these are mitzvot that you do because you, you know, yirat shamayim, right? The, the reverence for God or the reverence of the heavens. Is there any sense in... Um, in any historic writings that the uh, observance of mitzvot is um, um, better, I, don't, I can't find the right word, if it's done from, a, from, a, from love, from faith, from other, from other motivations as opposed to fear, or is fear equal? I, I'm curious to hear what Rabbi Shapiro remembers or thinks about this. I'm pretty sure that that the idea of Yerat Shemaim, which is this reverence for God, is synonymous with a love for God, right? And that is part of what's so difficult because if they're synonymous and yet we don't believe in that kind of fear, then how is it that we can understand both if, you know, if we're, if we're separating them? My instinct is to say yes. I just an example is not coming to mind. Um, like even the ve'ahafta after the Shema, right, is that you are commanded to love God, but it, but it doesn't say it doesn't say until the next paragraph, which is from a different part of our Torah, that that's because there might be punishment. So that's the first thing that's coming. To, I don't know, Rabbi Shapiro. Do you have another example that you're thinking of? I know you have to go, so say it quickly. It quickly. Um, the, the, the liturgical piece that came to mind for me was actually right before what Rabbi Schatz just cited, which is, um, in the when it's that we should, um, like unite our hearts to serve God in both love and awe, um, that, that, that both, right. That both are important. Um, I also don't have have off the top of my head like a specific mitzvah where Yirat Shamayim is like a prelude, right? Most mitzvot were actually taught don't necessarily need kavanah, stam in order, which goes back to part of what Rabbi Schatz, I think, is saying in terms of its its it, intention is important, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's about your actions, um, which which is a whole a, a topic for a whole you know, for for a different session of a class. I'm also not generating like off the top of my head, like this is a mitzvah where you need to be considering Yirat Shemayim in your brain as you do it. Otherwise you haven't activated, you know, 500 mitzvah bonus points per se. Um, I will say, right, there is the teaching that talks about how all is in the impure Kevo, that all is in the hands of heaven, except for fear of heaven, which is, probably even more theologically problematic for you, Elon, um, right? The sense that so much is out of our control, except for how, and, and the way I work with that teaching, I would, I would pivot in a different direction, is that I don't think, uh, you know, Rabbi Schatz nicely translated Yura as reverence, right? I often see it translated as awe as well. And this is where Heschel talks about radical amazement as well, that there is something to beholding a presence far beyond you and being struck by it in a deep and moving way, right? Yura incorporates fear. And, you know, when I am overwhelmed by nature or I see something that's really incredible, I don't know if I would say it's just fear, but there is something that's like, wow, this is much bigger than me. 
Um, and I think that is a way through which we can experience the divine. And I'll, I'll go back to this idea. I think this is the last thing I'll say before I turn it over to Rabbi Schatz to wrap up is, is I think it's okay that not all ways in which we think about connecting with God resonate for all of us, right? I think that goes back to an idea that we've been referencing a lot today. This idea that this was how I was going to wrap. So you can just be saying this and you can do the wrapping. I I am off to join the fourth grade for enhanced Kabbalah Shabbat, which also includes my son. So I don't want to be late for him. But on that, I will say Shabbat Shalom to all of you and leave Rabbi Shots to wrap things up. Oh, no. That, um, okay. Oh, that was the wrap up? My whole oh. great. You were going to use it as the wrap up. That's okay, all I got. I got to go. All right. Great. Bye. Okay. Um, I think one of the one of the pieces that I cut him off from saying, which was my invitation to tell him to keep going, um, was is that part of what what is so amazing about Revelation and this idea of the people asking Moses to be the one to now speak these commandments, and maybe even this movement away from from fear of God of being like thunder and lightning is going to come and smite me if I do something wrong versus the kind of relationship that Rabbi Shapiro was just talking about, which is more of a reverence for those or for that, which is bigger than you that you can can be struck by and therefore moved to, to want to um, honor and respect and obey and, and um, be in connection with. That that's what revelation is, that being able to have all of that revealed to us in a way in which we can be connected to it um, individually, not just as Jews, but individually is extremely important. And it, and it comes to us daily and weekly and monthly and yearly. And it's not something that we just have to wait for, you know, for big moments like the receiving of the Ten Commandments. So I hope that this Shabbat, when you hear the Ten Commandments, you are able to hear the things that you need to hear in those Ten Commandments, or you're able to experience something this week that you yourself need as a revelatory moment, um, and that you're able to think about your connection through through real growth and and relationship rather than that um, that need to have something over you at all times telling you what is right or what is wrong, um, but rather be in that connection together. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.